Turning your Bibles, if you will, and in light of uh, next Saturday being Christmas, I'm going to just pivot off of one verse in 1 Corinthians 13, and then go to 1 John and speak uh, on the uh, love of God being on display, and, and Christmas is all about that. Let me uh, read a verse to you. It comes from 1 Corinthians, a great chapter describing love, and we'll pick that up next week. But in verse 4 of chapter 13, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not seek its own things. Uh, some translated, it does not insist on its own way. And then I want to show you how that God's love has never sought his own interest, ultimately, but the interest of others. And so I go to 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Three things I would like to just underscore for you from this passage. Three things about God's love being on display in Jesus Christ. Number one, it's in the nature of God to love. It's God's nature to love. And you hear that a lot, but we'll try to unpackage that a little bit for you. Two, the big issue is if he does love, how does he manifest it? And that leads to two other points. God's love has been manifested the most in Jesus Christ, and we'll see this, what God gave and who he decided to give it to. And then thirdly, God's love, and I'm not sure we'll have the time, and if not, many of you will count it a blessing that I stop. Uh, but the third thing is how God wants to be displaying his love today, and the present tense display of God's love happens through God's people. We ought to be a loving people because our God's loving and because his greatest manifestation was in Christ, and Christ says, love just like I've loved. The nature of God uh, is to love. He said, God is love. Now, I must say this. He's not only love. Uh, some people want to say uh, they really invent their own God. They make a kind of a benevolent Santa Claus. Uh, they make a God in their own image, but the God you invent can never save you. Uh, the God you invent uh, just doesn't exist. 
Uh, he's all good. God is love. Uh, anything I do, he loves me for it. And they exclude the fact that God gets angry, that God has a holy wrath. You see, because love isn't all that he is, but it's a part of who he is. He also gets angry. He says in Romans that he's displaying his wrath against men and women who choose ungodliness, choose unrighteousness, and choose to ignore him, break his laws. So there is a side of God you don't want to know, and that's his wrath. But there is that great benevolent side that he says, our God is a God of love, so we as his people ought to manifest that. Now, you may not know this. Human beings are not born loving. Uh, ever since we rebelled against God, we made a choice to become self-centered, self-serving, to become our own gods, and the world to revolve around us so that to be selfish is to be human. To be self-centered is a part of the human condition. It is only the work of God's grace in our heart that we ever give up the self-centered life. Because we had a contest with God in the garden. And God says, you can either love me and obey me, or you can choose to be your own God and to be autonomous to me. And we chose to be autonomous. And we chose to be our own God. And we began dying. We began caving in ever since. But it's in the nature of God to love. Uh, God has love from eternity. He's never had a selfish bone in him, if that were possible. God is spirit, so he has no bones. God has never been selfish. God has always been loving. Uh, you see, when there was no creation, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and they were constantly loving each other. I think of it as like a microwave oven of this radiant love going between the three members. There's never been rivalry. There's never been self-centeredness against the other members of the Trinity. Uh, they love themselves the most because there's none greater to love. So they've chosen to love the best and the greatest, and that's themselves. And in that, they're not selfish. They just have chosen to love what is best, and God is best. And every love less than God is second to the best, but God is the best love. And he can love himself without being self-seeking. He just, there was only God at one time. But then God decided to create, and he created spirit beings, billions of them, more than the stars of the heavens. We don't know how many spirit beings there are in the universe. And he chose to love spirit beings. He, he loved Satan before he ever fell. He made him a promoted spirit being that even guarded the throne of God. Lucifer, son of the morning, the anointed cherub. So he's loved angels. He said that he loved angels so much that he kept two-thirds of them from rebelling against him. So he chose them not to ever rebel. He let Satan lead a rebellion. And he has said a great statement, God has so loved the world and in John 3, the world represents all that is opposed to God. Now, God in, in himself is a being of love. He's never had to learn to love. He's never had to be told you're naughty because you won't share. No, no. It's in the nature of God to sacrifice of himself for the benefit of others. 
just take that working definition of love. We looked at love has many connotations, but when we're thinking about love in God, it's a love that will sacrifice. It will give for the benefit of those it loves. How has God shown and manifested this love the greatest? He says in the text, God's love has been made manifest in that he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ is heaven's love wrapped up in one life. And you read throughout describing the son. God gave up his son. God sent his son. God spared not his son. God sacrificed his son. What is it saying here? God was willing to love you to the point and to the extent that he would give the dearest thing to him. And that was his one and only kind of son, God the Son, who was there with him from eternity past, who was in on creation, was in on making the plan for the ages, he was there with God the Father and the Spirit. They've never been apart. They're co-eternal beings all the way back, all the way back, and yet agreed upon among them. Jesus Christ agreed to the Father's plan to give him up, and he said, I'm willing to be given. I'm willing to be slain. So when you think of God's love, it starts way back in eternity, he begins his humanity at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago plus. And yet when you think of this gift, I'm moved by the words of Romans 8.32. He spared not his own son. Uh, that word spare not goes right back to a favorite Jewish story that is told over and over of how much Abraham loved God. You know how much Abraham loved God? He was willing to lay a son on an altar, raise the knife, and had God not intercepted him, he would have plunged the knife and killed the son in obedience to God's command. Go to Mount Moriah, take your unique son, Isaac, born in your old age, born to the woman you really love, Sarah, a supernatural child, born beyond her years to have a child, go up there and do what I say, and when you get there, take the wood with you, put him on the altar, and in the midst of getting ready to obey God, and in his heart, the Bible said he'd already killed his boy. He'd already submitted to it by faith on the way up the mountain. And in the midst of it, God intercepts provides a lamb caught in a thicket, and spares the boy. But God says, my love for you is a love that will never spare me the pain of having to give up my own son. There will be no one caught in the thicket to take his place. The full justice of God will fall on him. There will be none to deliver. And God says, I know it before he ever comes to Bethlehem, before he's ever born with a human body, I know what it will cost. I will not spare him. And so this morning, what we cling to the most, we don't need a therapist to tell us we're loved. We've got a God that says we're loved. 
and a God that says we're loved in measuring it by the cross, the cross by Bethlehem. God spared nothing to show us his love. He says he gave him as a propitiation, which is a strong word, a strong concept. In Greek mythology, the gods were always angry. A matter of fact, if you ever visit other countries, uh, you might see a laughing Buddha once in a while, especially at a restaurant. But the gods of mythology were always angry, were always sentimental, always needed to be pacified. So whether you're in Haiti visiting a voodoo uh, cemetery, as my wife and I did, and watch them feeding dead loved ones at the cemetery, whether you're at different temples throughout the East, you'll find the gods stay angry, stay on the edge of pouring out wrath, withholding crops, withholding blessing. They have no image of a happy, benevolent, giving God. In paganism, you do the giving, and the angry or the temperamental God may bless, may not. But our God has said, I've not asked you to give a son. I'll give the son for your sin. And he will do something. He will propitiate me, which is basically saying, he will appease my anger and satisfy my claims against the human race and your sins and your offenses and your selfishness, your self-centeredness, your declaration that I'm God until I've got cancer, until I'm broke, until I'm desperate. I'll never come to God unless I'm desperately in need of him. And God knows how to get you there. I wish you would come with a tender voice. Just come. Just receive. He knows how to tighten the pressure. He knows how your life is in his hand. He knows how to force you to capitulate. But God is a wooing, loving God. It wouldn't be worship if he forced you. God is not a cosmic rapist. He wants you to come and love him because you choose to love him, not because he forces himself upon you. And so he woos. So he shows us the kind of love that no man can measure, the love of the cross. Now, there's something about the objects he loves. Uh, four things that I would say about them. First of all, he has chosen to love his enemies. Uh, you may not think of that. Uh, God considers the race to be hostile towards him. And if you don't think that's true, ask yourself, how did Jesus Christ go back to heaven? Coronated by us or crucified by us? You'd have to be blind to history. Who's sitting back in that condition? It was us. It was a human race. God sent his best gift and we crucify it, spit on it, crown it with thorns, drive spikes in his hands and his feet. What was our response to his love? We don't want it. Keep it. We don't, if this is the best you can do, God, take it back. It's like a child that you sacrifice to buy them their new or their first bike. And when they get it at Christmas, they tell you they don't like it because it's not the right color. What you want to do in love is just pick them up. 
Say, if you only knew what it took for me to get that, may not have cost you that. I remember the first bike I ever got. Do you? I was in the third grade, and I kept it till the ninth grade. That's doing pretty good. Because that was something else. That gave me freedom. I could at least get five miles away from the house by the third grade. Don't mess with my bike. I need the wheels. And so God, he's heard the human race. Is that the best you can do? Because when you love your enemies, they may never praise you for the gifts you give them. You see, that's what's so hard about forgiveness. Forgiveness is easy as long as I'm telling you to do it. It's hard when I've got to do it. Because in forgiveness, I, I don't want anyone, don't try this on me, okay? Because I might not be in a forgiving mood. I'm not telling you I'm a forgive. I, the only reason I forgive is God said he won't forgive me. So I'm not sure it's because I'm noble. Because in forgiveness, you bear the full liability of what was done against you. Forgiveness is not, you really hurt me bad, so I'll only carry a grudge for three months, and then it'll be over, and I'll only, uh, you know, burn down your doghouse, uh, but then we'll call it even. No, forgiveness, biblical forgiveness is, I assume the debt of your hurt, I freely release it, and I charge you nothing for it. Stephen's saying when he's being stoned, Father, forgive these men. Don't lay it to their charge. Well, who are you going to charge, Stephen? There's no one to charge, but Stephen dies a martyr's death. God the Son on the cross. Father, forgive these soldiers that are crucifying me, for they know not what they're doing. Forgive them. I'll assume the full debt of their atrocious act. And so in propitiation, God has let the full penalty of our offenses fall on, if you can believe it, a substitute. And he provided it in Christ. This is how God's love has been manifest. He sent a son. He manifested a son. He spared not a son. He gave up a son. And then... He let the full wrath of an outraged God against the race fall on his son so that he says, God has loved his enemies. And that's you and I. He says something else, that Christ made your problem his problem by coming. That is an amazing thing. Uh, Christ stepped in the place where he took your problem, your alienation from God, your sin against God, and he steps in the place, I will assume full responsibility for the guilty's sin, and Christ stepped in the place that the full weight of God's judgment fell on him as though it were me. He took it, and then he says, and I'll give you my righteousness. I'll make a complete exchange. I'll assume. You know, it's, um, I don't mind giving a panhandler some money. But I don't want to assume his problems. I don't mind giving some folks that are having a rough time a gift. 
buy them some groceries. But it's another thing for me to assume their problems, to get involved with their life, to really feel what they feel. Oh, no, I can't. Let me write you a check. Let me drop. Oh, here's some money and be done. Be clothed, be filled. I did my Christian duty. I gave you some money. Uh, I responded. But, but God didn't do that with you and I in Jesus. He assumed our need. He assumed our poverty and our sinfulness. He let it all be transformed to him so that he stepped in and became the sin bearer and did you know when God decided to love and save you, here is the amazing thing. He stuck with you for eternity. Some of you are looking forward to the day that you finally get your kids raised. Let me tell you, that's about age 50. I meet parents all the time. I thought when they turned 18, you know, I lost my tax write-off, no more help. It didn't stop that way. Just pray they don't move home. Well, that may be a blessing for some of you. All of mine have different times. When we quit feeding them, they moved out. Uh, but, you, you know, it, it's one thing. We raise a child. When, you, when a man or woman gets me and says, we want a baby, you know, that, that they don't stay a baby. They actually get where they eat quite a few groceries. They want cars. They want gas money. Uh, they want privilege. They, you know, and all of a sudden you're sitting around as they go out on a date. How much longer do we have to raise them? What about forever? What about God saying to you, I want to love you, but I know if I get involved in loving you, I may have you on my hands for all eternity. And that's what God has chosen to do. I'm attached to God for all of eternity future because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You are mine forever. This is love you can't hardly take in. And then he said, uh, when I love them, I, um, it will cost me everything. I'll spend myself. He used a word in Philippians that said he emptied himself, and theologians have tried to figure out what did he empty himself of. Well, what he emptied himself of was himself. There was no more to give after he came. He emptied himself. You get it? He emptied. There's no more in the jar. It's all poured out. When Christ came, there was no more he could give. You can't go any further than death on a tree. That's how far he went in his love. There was no more to give. There was not a dime on him. He's still on the cross with the garment his mother gave him when he became an adolescent. No other garments did he own. He owned no real estate. He said, I envy the birds that at least have a nest to call home, for I have no place to call home. God could get no poorer. God could give no more than he gave in Jesus. That's God's love on display. That's God's love on display. And then I think uh, the fourth thing, one, we were his enemies. Two, he made our problems his. Three, he emptied himself for us. And here's the thing that's amazing to me. He knew we could not 
pay him back. Um, have you ever had anyone hang out with you and they knew you would always be a financial liability? It's hard to keep friends. Did you know most friends are based on the same social economic level? Now, you remember those folks you were poor together with. But as you go on and you hit the big time, you usually don't run with them. You start running with those in the next category. And when you go out with them, they're just liable to pay for your bill. You gave up back here being poor and drinking milk out of a fruit jar. You've moved out, and you don't want to go back to the old neighborhood because everybody there is still in need, if you know what I mean. And you hope people grow up where they can maybe, you want to run with folks that can financially reciprocate. But did you know that when Christ and when God gave you Jesus Christ, they knew you could never pay them back? You can't. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. He did not stand in need of anything we could do for him and well knew that we should never be able to require him to give us his kindness or even to do anything toward it. He knew that we were poor, miserable, and empty-handed outcasts who might receive from him but could render nothing to him in return. I think some of the dearest people in my life are those who gave to me, uh, always knowing uh, he, he can't pay back. I got a friend here today, when I got married, had terrible tires from a car going to preach, and uh, man, he didn't have a lot of money, but he put the tires on my car. I remember a guy that uh, uh, when I was going through school, uh, would feed me every day. I, I would barely get across the San Francisco Bay Bridge. I went, went to school down on Franklin Street in San Francisco. And uh, I would land there. I lived in Livermore, and I would land at school with $5 downtown San Francisco, $5 in which I had to feed a meter. But as long as that guy was in school that day, I knew I'd be fed because he'd always buy me breakfast, sometimes lunch. And he knew there's no need of me pulling out a wallet. I had nothing in it but five bucks. When I first started this church, uh, it's kind of a joke. Uh, and the staff know this because they always want me to take them to lunch because they know I'll pay it. You, is that not right? Uh, Lockwood just bought me lunch the last time. Good. Uh, but I remember when I started this church, I used to tell guys, hey, you, you want to go to lunch? Well, yeah, who doesn't want to go to lunch? Well, I thought, oh, oh, I need to tell you this. Uh, if you take me to lunch, you'll have to pay because I have no money. I, I can provide you some of the world's best conversation. But it will cost you paying the bill because I have no money. I remember I was in this church for three months. I could no longer make my uh, apartment rent of 170 a month. And had to get rid of my car because I couldn't pay $65 a month on a new car. And so my brother David let me move in. And uh, he told me, he said, whenever, whenever you start getting any money, you can help on the rent. His house payment was $250 a month. He said, help if you can. When I was starting a church, the help was very distant future if I can. 
And then he said, but anytime you need cash, I keep it here in my house. He was working two jobs, and because I was going to school, uh, I need to pay bridge toll, buy gas. Here he is. If you can help me on the rent, do so. If you can't, my cash I keep over in this certain drawer, and anytime you don't have money, you get it there. What terms? Wouldn't you like to get a renter that way or a landlord? If you can, pay. If you can't, over here's cash. I've been trying to get another deal like that. It just, it's evaporated. It's evaporated. Uh, one thing, you see, God knows that you can never pay him back. But you can accept the gift. You can receive it. And I think what he said to his people, today in the world, what God wants his people to do is to love like Jesus. And I must say that's my greatest weakness, my greatest sin, my greatest lack. I don't have to go out and rob a bank to be a terrible sinner. My greatest lack is how little I love like the Savior. He set a standard that makes all of my love seem minuscule compared to his love. Uh, he said, I set you an example for how to love as he washed their feet, as he stooped to serve. Uh, I want you to love like I've loved you, and then men will know you're my disciples. I read a great thing that Benjamin Warfield talked about when we're being benevolent. We have a, a, an agape, benevolent fund in this church where people who are in need uh, or simply can't pay the rent, don't have food, whatever, uh, we seek to help them. And uh, many times uh, we hear all kinds of stories of why they need help. And uh, uh, it's interesting when you study poverty, you have the liberals and you have the conservatives. Liberals, a lot of times, let's give them money and we don't expect them to do anything for it. Conservatives can always blame poverty while they, they should have done better. It's their fault. There's, in the Bible, three causes of poverty. One is oppression and injustice. Not paying a man a fair wage was one of the Old Testament indictments that James picked up in James 5. Uh, the fields cry out against the owners that they don't pay their laborers. So when you have an oppressive economy, when you have, uh, where you can't get justice, people will be forced into poverty. Uh, second thing that people are thrown into poverty, it's something called natural disaster. Have you heard of depression? We're afraid of the word, so we call it recession. Um, all of my people became dirt poor, white trash people to California because a depression wiped out everything they had in the Midwest. And so if you saw them, they said there's just nothing but fruit pickers, Okies, Arkies, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, Oklahoma. Said, so, well, what are these poor white folks invading and blacks from the South? What are you doing in our precious, beloved state of California? says it's called a depression, and we're starving in a dust bowl. We're poor through natural disaster. The crops have failed. 
The grasshoppers have eaten the crops. The locusts have moved through. We're poor through no doing of our own. Famine, flood. I thank God every time it rains because we're a Mediterranean state that we won't make it without rain. Those Sierra Nevadas have got to be full of snow to make it through the summer. I thank God for the rain. We haven't come up with how to make rain yet. And then poverty is brought on by personal sin, laziness, uh, squandering of goods. But listen to what Warfield says. Some people, when they're asked to give, say, uh, oh, money is my own. I worked hard for it. But Christ could have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Some say uh, the poor are undeserving. We don't want to get involved in helping people bat off. Warfield raises the objection Christ could have said, the wicked are rebels. Shall I lay down my life for those who rebelled against me? They don't deserve it. Some say we don't want to give and help poor people because they may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. With far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that would despise it, reject the work of the cross, and never come to God and find God not worthy of their love still, even after the cross. But he loved anyway. We have been called to be the uh, carry-oners, as it were, of the love of God. And so this Christmas season, I pray you'll find ways to show people love, find ways to be benevolent, to be good to people. If you have it, share it. The greatest love you've got and the greatest gift we have to give people is Jesus Christ. And it's a love that uh, if a man is poor, if a man has nothing, is it not a love that will make us emulate the God who became poor that he might make us rich? I, I pray that God would deliver every one of you that are stingy. You know nothing of God to be stingy. All for me. Me, me, me. That's what God is in the mess we're in. Me, I, I want to be my own man. Why don't you obey the God who's outgiven all of us? That if you had to pay back the debt, you couldn't even make a dent in it. Now may we as his people manifest a divine love. Not religion, not Christianity. Please don't promote Valley Bible Church. We're just a bunch of sinners down here saved by grace. Promote the God that outgave anybody. Promote Jesus Christ. Promote God. That's who we promote. If, if you don't like this church, find a better one. But my prayer is that you don't ruin it. Because if you're looking for a perfect church, it will cease to be that the moment you join. There are no perfect churches. There's a bunch of forgiven sinners. And if you can't stand to run with sinners, don't look in the mirror in the morning. Because that's your greatest. My greatest problem is me, not you. It's me, loving like him. 
Our Father, we thank you that we've been loved so greatly, so supremely in Jesus. Father, none of us matched Jesus in passing it on. Loving people like you, Father. Look where you found us. The indebtedness of our sin, the obnoxiousness of our attitude, the wretchedness of our condition, and yet it didn't hold you back. You spared not, but gave your Son for us who crucified him, hated him, and only your love finally won our hearts to let him come into our lives. I pray that you'll strengthen all these that are with us today, those who've come to see grandchildren and uh, children on display and our guests. I pray you'll give them, may this be their greatest Christmas. May they come to open the gift of all gifts, the gift of eternal life as revealed in Jesus Christ. We thank you for saving us through him. Let us stand and close.